Welcome back to Sales Tales, everybody. This is Josh Shirley. This is a good podcast for people who want to get better at selling while they're not selling. Last week, we spoke to Mike Montague and we learned a lot of great tips for how to automate your life with AI. This episode is a good companion to that because it looks for areas where we might be over-automating. So the question we're trying to answer today is where am I over-automating? In other words, where do I need to reinsert the human element that might be missing in some of my sales conversations? Dave and I want to introduce you to Jesse Marseille. Here's his elevator pitch. Hey everybody, I'm Jesse Marseille. I'm leading growth for Truebase. We're an AI prospecting tool that's shaking up uh, really the whole tech stack for anybody in B2B sales. And in the past, before Truebase came along, the prospecting workflow was like assembling a puzzle. You had to discover a new company in a tool like Apollo or Zoom Info. You do this through the prospecting database. You have to qualify that company and make sure it's actually a good fit for you. You got to go to their company website. You got to go to their company LinkedIn page and verify that the firmographic data matches up with what you're looking for in your ICP. Then you got to find the right individual leads within that company. Then you got to research those leads. You got to then find their email. You got to find their phone number. You have to validate whether those emails are actually up to date and whether these people actually work at the company still. So it's a lot of back and forth between your data provider, LinkedIn, the company's websites, and your CRM. The real problem, the real kicker, and, and why this takes teams so long is you have to do this for each company on an individual basis and each lead on an individual basis if you wanted a strong list. Without getting into the details too much, Truebase configures this process using AI and automation so that you do it one time and then it applies it automatically to build your list for you on autopilot. We had a great conversation with Jesse. This is by far my favorite episode we've done that talks exclusively about emails. And you don't want to miss his story about the time on a sales call, he got a shotgun pointed at his face. This is Sales Tales. Let's talk about the time I got a shotgun in my face in a sales yes. Okay, Contact. off to a strong a shotgun in your face? Like when you were yeah. selling? So, uh, so my first full-time sales job was with a company called College Pro Painters. I think I was a sophomore in college. Um, and it was residential door-to-door -door sales uh, for oh my home God. painting services, right? Yes. And uh, like I said, I was a sophomore, so I think I was 19. And the way that College Pro works is it's a franchise. So someone basically buys the right to, to a certain region and then they run the franchise for that area. So the guy that was running ours, he had just graduated from my college maybe a year before. So, I mean, this is basically a kid who's 22, 23. And uh, he thought he was a hard charging, you know, entrepreneur. So he said, you know, no matter what, make your way up the driveway, get onto that doorstep, ring the doorbell <laughs> and make your pitch. Nothing no should stop what. you. I don't care yeah. about a barking dog. I don't care about, you know, a, a trust, no trespassing sign. I don't care about any get of that. Get in stuff. there. I'm like, all right, you know. Solicitors will be shot. Keep going. <laughs> Ignore the Keep sign. Going. Make your presentation. So, uh, so I I do this for you know a couple of weeks, and I'm I think I'm getting a little bit better at it, and I close a couple of deals, and so I'm I'm getting confident. 
And, uh, you know, the, for, for what it's worth, the guy was right. Even when people say, I absolutely don't have time to talk to you or anything like that, you, there are situations where you can turn it around. So I'm walking up this driveway and I should mention the way that we, the way that we did this was, um, rather than trying to sell them the painting services right away, we offered a free paint assessment. So we would just take a look at their house, look at, you know, what kind of weathering the paint has so far and try to assess is your house weatherproof? Because if it's not, then, you know, you're going to damage the value of your home by basically having erosion and moisture in the wood yeah. and all of that. So, so you're looking so at this is before, look- this is before though, you go to the door. So yeah. You're yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. You're so out. you're lurking. Well, we do, we do our little <laughs> preliminary. So we have yeah. something to say and then we go up and then we yeah. say, you know, we can do like a, a full, if you let me walk around the I house, noticed, we can do like yeah. a full one. So, uh, so I walk up the driveway and I see as I'm walking up, there's a no solicitation sign. And I'm like, that's fine. I know what to do. I've dealt with this before. And I'm, (laughs) which is to solicit. And and I'm, and I'm walking up and I see a guy is watching TV in his living room. His curtain is kind of pulled to the side. So he's got a view of me through his window and he sees me walking up and he gets up right quick off of his chair. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to get yelled at. I'm going to get yelled at. And he opens his door and he's kind of halfway out his door and he goes, you know, you MF, don't you see that I've got a no solicitation sign? And I say, yeah, I'm not soliciting. And he goes, what do you mean? You need something from me? I I go, no, I'm offering you a free diagnostic of your home's paint job. And that's when he pulled out the shotgun. Oh, but it's free. free. Yeah. So free offers don't quite uh, have the same power anymore after that experience. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe that guy's good. So does he open it? Like I got to get the whole picture here. So he's up like a shot and obviously he's the shotgun is available to him. This is not like I got to go downstairs I got to unpack it. Like it's somewhere in his umbrella stand, right? Right by the front door. I think it was so, leaning, leaning against like the side of, right next to the front door. Yeah. Yeah. So he opens it. It falls. So, so you walk up and here he is. You're like, I, I, I surrender. So you did leave. Of course. I mean, yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I've never turned around so quickly. A speedy yeah. retreat. <laughs> yep. Not going to get this one. No How was the house, by the way? Did it need paint? Let me let me put it this way. He looks like the kind of guy that doesn't get out of bed to smoke his pack of cigarettes. Okay. All right. Well, that's yeah. that is. I can I can honestly say, Josh, that I've not had a sales call involving a shotgun. So I've been in remote sales ever so, since so, for that exact so reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm behind a computer these days. Yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that as well, Dave, uh, it just in, in the history of my, I mean, I've been selling for a long time. I think time, that's on the Mount Everest of sales stories right now. Well, us. I think everybody can look at Jesse and go, you know what? At least it wasn't a shotgun in my face. Like, and we yeah. always say, what's the worst that can happen? Well, I guess we weren't thinking about this. Yes. Well done, sir. <laughs> so well yeah. done. Now yeah. the next question so is Je- because you're a behavior animal for selling, 
you didn't go home after that shotgun story. You went right to the next house, right? You know what I did? I, I called my boss and I said, how much are you paying me for this? <laughs> <laughs> so that was your last sales call. <laughs> I didn't make it too much longer after that, to be honest. Yeah, you're like, ah, this is not yeah, for me. Yeah. That's good. Very it's, good. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough business, man. You didn't ask for a uh, referral like Josh. You, you, know, you could have asked for, listen, right. I know you're clearly not interested. Just curious. Is there anybody else you might <laughs> refer me to? <laughs> Yeah. So if you could make a couple of introductions, I looked on LinkedIn and found these three people. Oh God. That's right. so great. Yeah. That would have been a good time for that. So Jesse, today uh, you've made your transition into the AI world where you're working with Truebase and, and helping people to speed up some of their, um, you know, uh, curation of, of contacts and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I wasn't sure if that, if that was going to follow with the question, but yes, definitely um, excited to be in the AI space. I mean, we all heard five, six years ago that this day was coming. And I think like most people, I kind of sold it off down the river and said, yeah, that'll impact somebody else at another time, at another decade. That's not me. Uh, and then I started to talk with other sellers that were a little more tech savvy than me at that time that were experimenting with different tools. And this was before chat GPT, keep in mind, well before chat GPT and the outputs that they had were always pretty clunky. You could never trust any of the tools to write a good email without heavy editing. So at best it needed a lot of revision and at worst, it, you know, you could potentially offend a customer. And, uh, yeah. so I was like, skeptical and also understood, you know, this will probably happen, but we're not there. And after yeah. the release, you know, the open AI release, it was like, wow. Okay. Yeah. There's something, there's something to this. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I need to start learning now and kind of get ahead of the herd. Yeah. So the question you came to help us answer today is where are we over automating? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So I started with automation well before I started doing anything with AI, right? And a lot of times we conflate the two, but they're actually different. AI can certainly okay. enhance and, and support automation, but people have been using automations in their email inboxes for you know well over a decade. Um, for my purposes, it was always about how do we write emails at scale that are both personalized and relevant to everybody that reads them? And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I started doing this like everybody else with the features and functionality that were embedded in my sales engagement platforms. So if I was using Sales Loft or a similar tool, Outreach, whatever it was, you know, Spintax, that's a very basic automation. I would say that even writing up an email cadence and scheduling it to go out to a, a list with a certain volume threshold, that's an automation, a basic one, but you know, that's kind of an introductory yeah. use of automation. Nice. And that's, and that's where I started. And of course, the first thing that every kind of amateur to that world does is they go, cool, I got a reply to this email. I'm going to use that exact same template on 2000 people and send right. it out tomorrow. 
right? And that's exactly what yeah, I did. Because don't we always hit that that wall where you know you start using email as a prospecting tool? And one could argue it's it's not necessarily an acquisition tool. But with that argument aside, like we start using email to and and we get into this same discovery that you mentioned earlier, which is well, how do I actually make it so that it is personal, but I but also low effort? Because we kind of get to this place where we're like, oh, the emails that are working are actually really personal when they get a dialogue going and, and I, I handcraft those things. But then when I back up and try to like do this at scale, I, I hit a wall. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a number of things that break. So the first thing that breaks is your domain. And, you know, this was not a topic that really any sellers knew about even five to 10 years ago, I mean, there were exceptions to that, like very kind of IT savvy people, but your average seller, nine out of 10 times, no. had knew nothing about domain health, you know, about DKIM or SPF, well, help, any of these help things. Help us out there, Jesse. What, what, what does that mean you break your domain? Yeah, so, you know, at a high level, basically your, your domain is monitored by email inbox providers, whether that's Google, okay. Outlook, whatever the case may be. And they've got filters that are scanning their networks to determine, are people sending spam from these addresses? And so if you follow behavior that looks like spam, they first give you a warning and you usually get a warning in your inbox that says, hey, you know, we notice that you're sending a particularly high volume, uh, you need to slow down. And eventually if you, if you don't listen and you keep doing that, they will actually shut down your ability to send emails. Got it. Okay. So breaking the domain means that we've sort of overwritten our permission to really send emails. You've broken the terms and conditions. You are in the email doghouse. Got it. Okay. And so, um, all right. So we've established, you know, for, for people who might be wondering like what automation means, we've broken down, uh, you know, where, you know, some of the breakdowns start to happen when it actually comes to email, when we're, when we're trying to solve the problem that you brought up earlier. So that sounds like it's one of the ways we could be over automating and one of the consequences for that. Yeah. yeah? So don't yeah. send out a thousand Good, emails an hour. I don't even think it's that high anymore. Right. The, oh, the we're down to like just 50. Got- a day, fifty a day, yeah. Kind of best pre- per per inbox, yeah. Yeah, nice. So you got a team of so, you know 20, 20 BDRs, and they're all just going to town on their own. Yeah, that, that's going to end pretty quickly. Like, man, I've heard that story before. Uh, yeah, and I've lived that story. Yeah, yep, yeah. So how how do people know when they're or maybe what are some questions somebody could ask themselves about like, how do I know when I'm over on Yeah. Like what, what are, what, what are some guideposts you can give us? Yeah. It's a really good question. So the first thing I would look, let, look for always is feedback from the buyer. Right. And, and, or lack thereof. So we always want to couch these discussions in terms of what is this doing for the buyer experience? There are plenty of sales best practices that, if your market is telling you that they don't like being sold to that way, you shouldn't do it, even if it's yeah. a best practice. Okay. And there are plenty of things that break best practices 
that if you're getting good results and buyers are telling you that they've enjoyed the experience, go ahead and do it. So I'm always looking at, first of all, are people even engaging with this sales tactic? If they're not engaging at all, maybe we just need a bigger sample size. And, you know, I've sent 50 emails. I got no replies. Let's, let's move that up to 500. If you get to the point that you've sent a couple thousand emails and you haven't gotten a single reply, something is wrong. And if yeah. you've automated this process, you could get that, that few thousand out very, very quickly. So at that point, you need to kind of go, okay, am I using the same template across all of these emails? Is it an effective template? And is it possible that I'm oversaturating my buyer's inboxes and doing things like, you know, sending them an email every day? I've seen, you know, certain sellers do stuff like that. So first, what is the feedback you're getting from the market? Got it. Okay. So feedback from market meaning, okay, if your buyers don't like it, let's try and find something else. I might be over automating in, in a in a way based on what my buyers are. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Makes, you th- makes total. You sense. think about that, like the the sequence has got so I don't know pedestrian. I think yeah. like the last couple of years that you, you knew, like you immediately knew when you were in one, Yep. like the, the, maybe the first email was kind of okay. Maybe there was a little something about me or something about my situation that was there. But beyond that, it was like just tone deaf. Like it's just being sent to me without any kind of thought. And, and I think early on when people were like, Oh, that's new. Maybe you got a better response, but over time it became so other companies, your competitors started hitting you and you really just got pretty clear that this was a a, a sequence. Did you experience kind of that, that curve? I mean, you know, you learn, you learn because you start receiving those sequences. Right. And as clever as I thought I was, when you're on the receiving end, you see how obvious it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So that's kind of run its course, maybe. Yeah. Like we kind well, of have to evolve to the next thing. It, it's run its course the way that it used to be practiced. I, I think about this stuff a lot differently now. So just to give you a little tease, maybe of like how you can still go forward, even using this approach. The question that is worth asking is, is there ever an email sequence that's worth sending even if the recipient knows that it's an automated email sequence? The answer is not always yes, but the answer is sometimes yes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you have to validate. Makes sense. Right. Okay. So first guidepost, buyer experience. Yeah. It's the second guidepost. Then it's the feedback that you're getting from the tools themselves. So when you are looking at engagement data, open rates, these kinds of things, you know, are people even opening the emails? Are they sharing it? Are you getting multiple opens? And I know when I mention open rates, people go, oh, the spam filter gives you, you know, it can indicate that it was read once. I get that. So I'm looking for multiple opens. That Mm -hmm. is evidence that the email is being shared. Mm-hmm. So that's another place you can look, even if you're not getting replies. And that would be a, okay. that would be just to state the obvious. I mean, that would be an indication that there was some interest, enough interest uh, upon the recipients to share it with their team. So maybe this is a topic that 
is actually being considered in that moment. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe they looked at a couple of times. I mean, I know when I'm kind of curious as a buyer, it's so rare that I respond to a prospecting email the first time I open it. Yes. It's more like, okay, I got an email from Sally, you know, the first email in the sequence. I kind of looked it over, sort of looks interesting, but I don't have time for that today. And then I get a second email and maybe the timing is a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so then I go back to the first and I see what she said. And then I open the second one again and kind of confirm. And I might do that, you know, two, three, four times over the period of a month or two. And it's not until then that I decide to reply. Got it. Okay. So feedback from the platform itself, helping us validate whether, you know, we need to, in in the in the quest of like understanding if we're over automating, we might be over automating if I'm not looking at that kind of data and deciding to take it out of the sequence and start making it more personal. Yes, yes. And then the other the other aspect of that is like, how much time is automating actually taking, and what's the feedback that you're getting from your team about it? And again, this yeah. is a huge one that a lot of people miss out on and. Or, or, or they fail to take take into account, and I've messed up here before. When I've led BDR teams in the past, um, I thought, oh, okay, you know, I've learned a bunch of really cool tricks about how you can use Airtable and different APIs to basically increase the amount of uh, diversity you have in your email copy. So the way sentences are phrased, the kinds of um, the kinds of like evidence that you pull in or signals that you pull into the emails from the buyer's LinkedIn, things like that. I got really fancy with these systems and then I would try passing them over to a teammate and they were like, I don't, I don't want to take the time to learn this. You told me it was going to take five hours. I spent five hours and now all I have are questions. (laughs) And it's like, well, you know, so it's like, it took me 20 hours to build the dang system. Now I'm another five to 10 hours into trying to train somebody on it. We both could have picked up the phone for those 30 hours. Right. You know? So. Right. So I've, I've, I've invested the upfront time that it's going to take me to automate something only to have it not be automated because somebody's technical yeah. sort of acumen doesn't match the objective. I mean, ex- look, I'll go through phases where I'll realize over the course of a month that I spent you know, half a dozen hours or more evaluating other tools because I was curious about them. Yeah, it yeah. could have been selling. Yeah, absolutely. So that's interesting. Like, so there, there's a buyer voice that we've heard, right? So first guidepost is we have, you know, whether or not your buyers are reacting to it. And you broke that down for us in a couple of ways. And then now, like, there's the technical aptitude of the team to actually learn and apply it. And it may not be, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like you're saying that, that it's necessarily like a personal gap for them. It's just maybe it doesn't really fit the situation. But with those two pieces locked in place, is, is there also a consequence or like in terms of where your company is in terms of how it's placed or in the market or how well known it is in the marketplace. Does that have anything to do? with Yeah. That? So it's like, it, it does. And I'm glad you bring this up. You have to be really careful 
with oversaturating your TAM, your total addressable market. And automation makes it so that you can do that in a, I mean, you, theoretically you could do it in a day. I think on a practical basis for most teams, they when they do this by accident, it happens in a quarter or two, in a business quarter or two. Um, when you first load up your ICP in your data provider and, and, and you go, okay, we've got, you know, 5,000 potential leads, 10,000 potential leads, 50,000 potential leads. Seems like a really high number. Even 50,000 potential leads. I mean, look, a BDR team can reach out to that entire list in a month. No problem with these tools. One BDR can. You'll break your you'll break your domain if you're not doing really fancy email IT stuff, but you can basically send out a really bad email that fifty thousand times, yeah, hundred percent, and you can do it really fast. Or you could do it one hundred fifty thousand times. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, and then you're and then you know when when the other consequence of that is not only does not not work from a just from a tech perspective sending the emails but then the then the bdr is like well nobody's qualified yeah what else <laughs> what, you got for me what's what's next and then they and then they go we need to change the buyer persona that we're going after yeah we got the wrong and we like, got the well, wrong yes yeah so all right so sounds like sounds like there's some consequences for using this across um across my buyer base and you, you, you gave us this term TAM, total addressable market. If I'm trying to automate some things across that market, it could be that automating something isn't the right play. And this is, this is me trying to, to make sure I, I heard you right. Like if I'm, if I'm trying to automate something where somebody just doesn't know who I am at, who I am at all, then I'm actually up against an educational barrier where they don't know me. Yeah. And so now I have, I have an email going out with a really targeted and specific message that isn't landing because they don't know what the hell it is I did. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, there's, there's multiple kinds of email campaigns. There's email campaigns that are general brand awareness. Those used to fall under the marketing team only mm-hmm. these days. Okay. SDR BDR teams have been doing that even if they don't know they have. Then there is what we would call a prospecting email, which is basically looking for a demo meeting. It's looking to book an appointment with somebody. Um, And then we've got what I would call basically a warm lead email or a relationship email. And that's an email to somebody that you know or that you've got a mutual connection with. It's not not fully cold. Um, Awareness emails need to be general enough that they don't pigeonhole the buyer into a particular use case or feature set that your solution has. Mm-hmm. So you gotta okay. be really careful with automation because let's say my buyer are my buyers are um, I'm selling to engineering software engineering leaders. And I've got this really specific feature that helps you put chat boxes onto your website. It's part of our overall feature set. And I reach out to 50,000 engineering leaders and I tell them, we've got this great tool that will quickly help your team put a chat bot on your website. And 
you know, 50% of those engineers or, or more are going, I'm not even involved with the front end of my website. Nothing that my team builds even has to do with customer interactions. This guy's offering is not relevant to me. Delete, unsubscribe, flag as spam, block. Yeah. And this is the right. problem because maybe your overall high level solution has a whole bunch of things that could help all of those engineering leaders. That's why you wanted to reach out to them. But you falsely pigeonholed your solution into this one specific feature. And that's where the risk of automation comes in is, you know, you've got a, a new seller maybe who hasn't been through this process many times and they go, yeah, that chat box thing is really cool. My, my dad's friend is an engineer and he said that would be awesome for his company. I'm going to tell every <laughs> engineer in the country about that. You yes. just burned your town. So if you're going to do a general awareness email, it's something more like, you know, you, you might have heard our name tossed around. We're Acme. We help engineering leaders with a, a range of things from a, from a to Z. We help engineering leaders with the following problems from A to Z. And you keep it really high level in general. You don't have a call to action. You're not pushing for a meeting. And you space those emails out so that they're not annoying people. And I make the tone of those emails very different too. Like I'll, I'll admit straight up, like just for your information, just so, just for your awareness, no ask, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. Okay. What were the three layers? We had an awareness emails and then what were the others? And then there's prospecting emails that are actually looking to book a meeting. And by Got the time it. you get to the point where you're trying to book a meeting, you're trying to get that demo meeting, you need to have a hyper-targeted list. You should not, Okay. basically you should never send a generalized email to your TAM trying to book a meeting with people. In, in B2B, it, the use cases and the, and the business problems that buyers face are so specific and the kinds of business problem triggers that will motivate them to take a meeting are so specific that you, you need to narrow down on that messaging and narrow down on the list of who you're going after. Right. Yeah, this can really be different depending on your industry. Mm -hmm. And in, in tech, I absolutely agree with that, right? Like there's there's so many, there's so much specificity to, to what I could be dealing with that there comes a time where I've got to stop automating. Yep. Let's let email and automation and these bots or, you know, whatever I've got do the work until I understand how many times somebody's opened it, look back on it. Maybe some of those different uh, KPIs that you were giving us earlier about engagement. And once I've determined that I've got a focus list that I can then switch to the human element on, introduce that to make it effective. But I've also talked to, you know, um, guy who sells, you know, advertising space to media buyers. It's, it's a very quick to understand transaction. You know, do you want it or not? These are our rates in the space that we have. And I send 11,000 emails a day. And then because of that volume, each BDR gets a couple of calls out of it, right? Like, no calls, everything's inbound, it's all done through email, but that's because the there's a locked down sort of exchange that's happening on the email that's, that's all understood. And so sometimes people take a, a case like that and go, oh, well, that can work for my industry as well. But it sounds like you're telling us that's not really the case. Yeah, it, there are, I mean, it's a good caveat. 
I'll just say it straight up. Some stuff's easier to sell than others. Yeah. Stuff that's easy to sell, a lot of times you get a lot of competitors in that space pretty quickly and it becomes difficult. But there are right. simple transactional sales, just like you said, of, you know, do I want this or do I not? You don't have to yeah. do any change management. You don't have to have some big complex business case ROI analysis that projects five years into the future. You know, the, when I've consulted for IT services companies, it's like you've got deals that are tens of millions of dollars that are spanning multiple companies and multiple partner channels between those companies. So you have this whole matrixed environment of stakeholders. Yeah, you're not going to sell that over, over a prospecting email. Nice. This has been great, Jesse. You've given us a lot to think about when it comes to whether or not we're over-automating things. And this is a perfect example of that, where there comes a time to pass the torch from the robot to the yeah. human. And depending on our situation, we've looked at a few factors to help us determine when that handoff needs to take place. Yeah. <clears throat> Any, go, go ahead. I'm going to double down on that a little bit, is that before, let's let's go back to a world before we had all these tools, you know, yeah. and, and I'm going to exaggerate back to the yellow pad days, you know, as Josh and I can relate to that. But in, in, in those times you really were focused on the prospect first, like you had your, you had your solution here, but how it mapped into what they needed was what your focus was. Like I, I can, maybe I can help you. Maybe I can't, but we have to engage in a dialogue to get clear on what part of what I can bring will help solve your problems. Mm -hmm. And that's that creativity part. That's the, the, the seller art of under, you know, asking questions and understanding needs. And when you think about that pivot from you're getting somebody who's engaging with you and then taking that person. And that's when that page turns to like, okay, now I've got to be more diligent about, communicating it in a way that I hear you. There's something here for us to talk about. And now I got to become that more creative human seller. You can still use the tools. It doesn't negate the, the ability to use a tool to help you facilitate that. But um, I think that's where maybe some sellers are getting stuck. The automation is not going to get you to a contract. Right. At some point you got to right. like get into the sales process and get help them really understand how you can help them. Yep. Nice. Well, Jesse, it's been great having you on. We appreciate your time. Josh, Dave, appreciate you guys both. Thank you so much for the invite. This was fun. Hey, if you're into disclaimers, this next part is really going to rock your world. Sales Tales is a Kaufman Group podcast. The Kaufman Group is a franchisee of the Sandler Network, all rights reserved. No portion of this publication may be used without the express written permission of Sandler Systems, LLC. Sound engineering for this podcast by C2D2 Films.